Uh, we are very glad to have Carl Rove with us this afternoon. Uh, a few people have asked me, uh, Carl Rove speaking to British Studies, isn't that a little odd? <laughs> these are people who haven't read the, this excellent book or familiar with it. And as a consequence of 1898, there were a lot of international responses, not least were the British, and we can pursue this. Uh, so I will introduce Mr. Rove, and George Scott Christian will then introduce the speaker, and we'll go from there. George Scott. My pleasure. Um, it's a really great pleasure to be in this kind of distinguished company today, and I was thinking about last night, what am I, how, how do I introduce Carl Rove, because he's so well known, not only in the Austin community, but uh, all over the world, really. And I think the way I'm going to do it is to just let you know something about him. He and my father, George Christian, and also my mother, Joanne Christian, um, were very fond of Carl, and, and I think they were very close friends. And I thought, what would bring together kind of a sort of old conservative Democrat who'd been in Texas politics for 30 or some odd years and had worked for governors and for President Johnson, you know, together with a kind of young rising star in the GOP political consulting world who really came, I think, down here to build the Republican Party, uh, which really had not existed around here since Reconstruction and Carl. I think in some ways is the architect uh, you know, of the two-party system in Texas, certainly in, in my experience. And I think what brought them together was they both uh, were voracious, and are, uh, Carl is still, a voracious reader of history. And they both looked at things from a historical perspective. And I think they had a deep mutual regard and respect for each other. Uh, based on, uh, you know, how much uh, it meant to them to be able to kind of bridge their political gap and, and really discuss the future of, of our country and our state uh, in constructive ways and found ways, certainly, to work across the party lines. And, and um, I think, you know, one of my dad's last... Uh, I think memories was was what kind of friendship he was able to have with with Carl and certainly with President Bush and um, I will never forget you for that and appreciate that and uh, with that I will introduce Carl Rove. Thanks, George Scott. There's a simpler explanation. I loved your man, old man. I loved him. He uh, when I came to Austin they hunted Republicans with dogs. And uh, I was the only Republican political consultant in Austin. And in 1987, uh, your dad was working on a constitutional amendment campaign having to do with federal reimbursement of highway funds being dedicated to highways rather than being stolen by the legislature for other purposes. And uh, your dad said to uh, Tom Johnson, who just retired after 52 years as the head of the highway contractors, said to Tom, we need, this is a bipartisan effort, we need to get a Republican political consultant. There's a young one here in Austin, I think he'd do a good job, and that's how our friendship began. But I loved your old man, and uh, I went to pay my respects as he was in his final days to his office and expected to be there maybe 10 or 15 minutes and left two hours later after laughing harder than I've laughed almost any other time in my life because your dad got off telling stories. 
uh, particularly about Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> and some of you may remember Ed Clark. So tiny little guy, wore those old-fashioned collars, had the stick pin. And your dad told me a story about Johnson and Ed Clark and a group of Johnson's cronies went on a campaign trip, I think, in 52. And they drove over to Caldwell. Or actually, they drove over to someplace near Bryan College Station. On the way back, Johnson said, we're going to stop in Caldwell. I know a great place that has the best chili in Texas. So they drove to the wrong side of town and went into this dungy, dirty little hole in the wall. And Johnson ordered up a round of chili. And all of his aides and lieutenants started to eat the chili, and it was the god-awfulest, hottest stuff they'd ever tasted in their life. And Johnson was eating it with great relish, and when he finished eating his bowl of chili, he looked around at his compatriots, all of whom were sweating and bright-faced and struggling to finish their bowls of chili, and Johnson ordered up another round of bowls of chili for everybody. <laughs> and Mr. Clark, as you remember, had a high, squeaky voice. He said, Lyndon! And your dad, your dad had a fantastic imitation of, of, of Ambassador Clark. He said, Lyndon, I have traveled the dusty highways of Texas with you. I have let my tears fall on the faces of dead men I did not know. I have danced with ugly women for you, but I'll be damned if I'm having another bowl of that chili. <laughs> uh, okay, so the triumph of William McKinley. Hate to tell you, but there's not much Britain in here. Uh, of course, over the course of the Gilded Age, one of the big issues is protection. And with Britain being a, the leading free trade country in the world, the Republican Party tended to make um, Britain and uh, John Bull a campaign theme. But it was frankly secondary to the real purpose, which was to attract the Irish vote in the battleground state of New York. Uh, back in that era... Um, there were some familiar battleground states. Ohio was a battleground there. That's why virtually every Republican ticket had a Ohioan for president or vice president on it, and Indiana. But the big, uh, the big, the big block of uh, battleground states—the ones that were up for grabs in each and every election—were Connecticut, New Jersey, to a lesser extent Pennsylvania, and New York, the biggest state in the union. So the Republicans would have beat up on. Uh, John Bull, not only for the value of demonstrating they were in favor of protecting the paychecks of American working people, but also in order to attract the Irish vote. There's a, the, the, the issue of protection becomes a, a less dominant issue in the 1896 campaign, not because McKinley wants it to be. He wants the entire election to be fought over it. But he very early on in the campaign loses control of the issue agenda to a 36-year-old punk from uh, Nebraska, failed two-term congressman, who is, uh, in his own mind, thinks he's going to be a presidential candidate, but nobody else thinks he's going to be a presidential candidate. In fact, he becomes the nominee of the Democratic Party only after giving a speech that is the, itself the result of seven accidents. Uh, seven accidents bring William Jennings Bryan into the moment to stand up in front of 20,000 people and give the Cross of Gold speech at the end of a two-hour-long debate on the currency plank of the Democratic platform. People are literally bored and leaving when he stands up to speak, but he speaks and uh, energizes the crowd, and the next day is nominated the Democratic nominee for president, even though at the time of him speaking, nobody thinks he's a candidate. In fact, the night before he speaks, he has dinner in a restaurant in downtown Chicago with his wife and his close advisor, a Texan named Rosser, 
who is the superintendent of the state insane asylum. And, uh, and, and, and uh, there are men parading up and down in front of the, uh, of the doors of the restaurant, the windows of the restaurant, chanting the names of the front runners, uh, Governor Boys of, of uh, Iowa and the, the real front runner, Richard Park Bland of Missouri. And uh, Brian leans over and says to his wife and his close friend, um, they, these men don't know it, but tomorrow night they'll be chanting my name. <coughs> and she says, well, Mr. Rosser, do you think Mr. Mc, uh, Mr. Brian has a real chance of winning? And before Rosser can answer, uh, uh, Brian says, basically, uh, take it to the bank. Uh, you can sleep silently tonight. Tomorrow, I, uh, by, by this time, the day after tomorrow, I will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And literally, Rosser thinks that he's got another patient for the state of <laughs> Uh, there is a minor reference, in, 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 and I, I didn't get to put it in. Editors, damn them. They cut out one of the fun little stories in the book. There's this um, failed uh, politician, desperate, ambitious young man. Uh, he ran for mayor of New York City and came in third. And uh, he is, he's opposed by the, uh, by the Republican machine in, in New York. This is an era of great political machines in the Republican machines are, are led by the easy boss, Senator Thomas Collier Platt of New York. And he hates this young man and is got, never going to allow him to be slated for office. And um, incidentally, the, the, the easy boss, just everybody needs to have a nickname. In this era, everybody has a nickname. His, one of his chief lieutenants is the, is the blonde boss, Congressman William J. Larimer, the 34-year-old congressman, 32-year-old congressman in Illinois, who, who controls the Cook County Republican machine with 10,000 patronage jobs at his disposal. Well, anyway, there's this failed politician, and he's desperate to resurrect his political career, and he decides the only way to do so is to attach himself to a political candidate who's going to get elected president and then accompany him to Washington. And so this young man supports the Republican frontrunner, Thomas Brackett Reed of Maine, the Speaker of the House, who's about six foot three tall, inches tall, 300 pounds, and looks like a bowling pin with a walrus mustache painted on it. And uh, the young man uh, works hard on behalf of uh, his candidate, but his candidate comes up short. And uh, afterwards, he writes a letter to uh, uh, his sister in which he says, uh, we got a good platform in St. Louis, and McKinley's a good man, but he is weak, and I worry about him in a moment of crisis for our country. Two days later, he's writing one of McKinley's closest personal friends saying, we must do everything we can to elect McKinley. And when he gets elected, you must be the Secretary of the Treasury or at least the Minister to France. And my ambitions, such as they are, can go by the wayside, which was his way of saying, I need your help. (laughs) And he spends the next five months weaseling his way into the campaign. Shows up, he's taken a vacation, so he shows up at the Chicago headquarters on his way to his vacation and counsels with the 32-year-old campaign manager of the McKinley campaign, a man you've never heard of, but should have, and uh, writes letters to all of his friends about what he's hearing and what advice he's giving. When Mark Hanna, McKinley's close personal friend and money raiser, shows up in New York, he has dinner with him the first night, arranges to have dinner, and says, here's how you can approach uh, Boss Platt. Uh, He doesn't like you and he doesn't like me, but here's how to handle the man. And you need to handle him because otherwise you're going to lose this battleground state. A friend of his is invited to go on a campaign speaking tour in upstate New York, a U.S. senator. And he writes uh, his friend and says, uh, the young man, and says, you need to join me on the campaign swing. 
and don't give me all of these excuses. Uh, this is really important. Not knowing that his friend is desperately looking for a chance to shine on the campaign trail. So the two men go on a five-day speaking tour through upstate New York, and um, uh, the U.S. senator doesn't grab the headlines because he gets up and gives a thoughtful speech about the necessity of sound protection laws and of sound money currency, and here are the deep differences between the two parties. And his colleague, the failed politician, gets up and beats the crap out of William Jennings Bryan, saying the most vicious and nasty and ugly things you could ever imagine. And of course, the newspapers write him up as the headline. At the end of their five-day tour, they're going to go visit the major, Major McKinley, in Canton, Ohio. And one of their friends, John Hay writes a mutual friend, Henry Adams, and says, H and T have gone to Canton to bear their tummies and commit Harry Carey in front of the major. McKinley invited me to join the crowd, but, uh, to, jo to watch the spectacle, but I didn't want to join the crowd ruining his lawn. So the young man goes to, to uh, Canton, pays his respects to McKinley, who doesn't like him. And, but something happens, and, and McKinley's people say, will you go on a speaking tour through uh, Illinois, a battleground state, and Michigan, a battleground state, and trail William Jennings Bryan during the course of, your, of his tour there, and, and do what you did in upstate New York. So the young man goes to Chicago and gives a speech in front of 23,000 college students, the College Republican Assembly. Back then, the college, virtually every college campus was dominated by Republicans. Uh, Yale voted 96% for uh, McKinley in the, in the student straw poll that year. Uh, in fact, the, the uh, Prohibitionist Party almost got as many votes on the Yale campus as did the uh, Silver Democrats, but going to show that college campuses really have changed. The drunks would carry the vote today. <laughs> but <clears throat> he gets up and gives a speech called, uh, uh, called The Age of the Demagogue and proceeds to kick the holy crap out of William Jennings Bryan in front of these college kids. But he's interrupted by a Brit. There's a fanatical British silver money man named Morton Freewin. And he gets up and proceeds to heckle uh, the Republican speaker during the course of his speech. And afterwards, uh, the speaker writes a letter to his friend. He says, Just a line to tell you about my Western trip. First and least important, as to myself. I made a success of it and got in good form and spoke to immense audiences who always listened attentively and sometimes in Chicago and Detroit were mad with enthusiasm. The only serious interruption I had was, funnily enough, by Morton Freewind in Chicago. After a little sparring, I used him up so that he left the hall. Theodore Roosevelt. So uh, the two men had been friends in uh, uh, Morton had taken his inheritance and bought a bunch of North Dakota cattle land and, like Roosevelt, lost virtually all of his investment in the cattle, co in cattle country during a terrible winter in which the, the herds on the North Plains were decimated. So uh, he was a bimetallist and spent the campaign in, the, in America trying to encourage the election of William Jennings Bryan. But the, but the uh, young man uh, who was his friend, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, used him up and made him so angry he left the hall. Actually, the, the news reports differ, but one Chicago newspaper said it was the police that removed him from the audience, not himself. Anyway, I don't know what else you want me to say about this. Maybe Bill has some questions or you might have some questions. I can give you a hell of a stem winder on the book. It's a damn good read. <laughs> it's got sex and violence and backstabbing and betrayal and really cool nicknames and 
uh, twists and turns worthy of a coked-up Hollywood screenwriter, and it's an important election. Uh, we might have some political science majors here who studied the election. It's one of considered by VOK one of the, yeah. Have you, have you studied it? I, I read a couple books. Yeah, there we go. Excellent. Go ahead. Uh, I'm curious. So when McKinley, um, during the election, it seems like he didn't really have a lot to say about Cuba, or when he was asked about it, he said, you know, I'm, I'm uh, considering my options, something like that. Um, but Cleveland, it seems, was pretty optimistic that McKinley would kind of follow in his footsteps. Uh, well, McKinley is chairman, we can tell by looking at McKinley's past. McKinley is twice the chairman of the Resolutions Committee at the Republican National Convention. And ironically enough, led in part by the son of, of Ulysses S. Grant, Frederick Dent Grant, the Republican Party in the 1870s and 80s becomes huge enthusiasts of Cuban liberation, of a free Cuba. In fact, at the 1884 convention, the, the entire ceiling of the convention hall is decorated with flags of, of the states and then of the, uh, of the country, major countries around the world. And the most prominent place over the podium is given to the flag of a free Cuba. So my sense is that he was, he viewed, he was not an imperialist. He didn't, he didn't, he was, he was reluctant. In fact, he gives a, an incredible speech I read a lot of his speeches, and they're very formulaic. But there's one speech in particular that is deeply spoken from the heart, which is a speech he gives on October 9th to a group of 2,000 Confederate veterans. And he says, if we are ever forced to fight again, and God forbid that we shall, we shall do so, under, uh, we shall do so as brothers under a common flag. So he, he, this guy spent four years in, world, in the Civil War. He begins as a private. He ends as a major. He survives... Three un, he has three battlefield promotions for unbelievable valor. He survives two suicide missions. He says many of his friends and comrades shot and killed. And he, is, and he is forever after a gentle soul who wants to avoid war. So he was not a warmonger looking for a confrontation with Cuba. It, it, the sense is it was is forced upon him. My book doesn't deal with this as much, but Robert Mary has a wonderful new biography of McKinley well worth reading that deals with this a lot. Could you go ahead and say a few more words about uh, the war in 1898 against Spain and the consequences yeah, yeah. in the Pacific? And the well, <clears throat> um, I mean, it, you see them today. We take Cuba, we take the Philippines, we take Puerto Rico, we have previously annexed Hawaii, we give up Cuba as quickly as possible, the goal was to give up the Philippines as soon as possible as well. McKinley doesn't live long enough. My sense is McKinley would have found a way to give up the Philippines a lot longer, a lot earlier than subsequent presidents did. But because McKinley's view is we got plenty to say grace over. We want, we want Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico is important for our, for our naval power in the Caribbean. <clears throat> the, the windward, this, remember, at this point, they're still thinking a lot about the age of sail and why... Uh, Haiti and Puerto Rico were important was because the currents and the wind brought sailing vessels naturally into the Caribbean close to those two islands. So to protect our interest in the Caribbean, uh, Americans had for 20 or 30 years thought about having a major coaling station someplace in, in, the, in the Caribbean. Um, and, then, and then Hawaii was like the Gibraltar of the Pacific. And uh, there had been an attempt to annex it under Cleveland which had come to naught, uh, but uh, McKinley was receptive 
to it, and the island had been in turmoil for a number of years because of the disagreement between the, those that wanted annexation to the United States and those that wanted uh, to maintain their independence. Any controversy over taking Guantanamo in Cuba? Well, Guantanamo comes later, after, after McKinley, yeah. because we, we take Cuba, and then uh, it's subsequent presidents who decide we want to have a major installation on the south side of Cuba. Was there much of a political controversy over that when we did? Uh, not much. I mean, in fact, there's, there's more controversy. Remember, the, the, the South has had, and I'd be interested in Bill's reaction to this, my theory is the South, I mean, from the early part of the 1800s, the filibusters wanted to take Cuba because they saw Cuba as a natural extension of the slave power. And so their attitude was, we want Cuba because that'll be a fertile place for us to have sugar plantations, cotton plantations, and so forth. So there again was a sort of an inbred attitude of expansionism. Cuba naturally belongs to America. Now, Cuba ought to be in the American orbit. But, uh, but McKinley was not of that mindset. His mindset was it ought to be independent and free. Let's ask Will Brands to say a few words at this point. Uh, well, so on that subject, I mean, I'd like Carl to address this. Um, you've... You've shown the cooperation amid a certain kind of friction between McKinley and Roosevelt. Did McKinley have any idea um, when he offered Roosevelt the position of assistant Navy secretary that he was basically handing over the Republican Party to this new generation? Because he's the last of the Civil War officers as president. They've all, presidents have all been in (coughs) commanding positions in the Civil War until then. And now here's this this guy who was born two years before the beginning of the Civil War. So was there a feeling that the torch is being passed, especially yep. when he's brought onto the ticket in 1900. Yeah. Um, my theory is yes, that this is deliberate. One of the, I stumbled onto McKinley because I was interested in Roosevelt. I was interested in how Roosevelt went from 1895 when his political career is at an end. He's done. He's finished. He is, he is a young man, but he is on the outs. He's lost the mayorship. He is, his reputation is shattered. He's not going to be slated by the party. It's at NNN. So how does he end up in 1897 as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy? I mentioned the letter to Bammy, Roosevelt's sister. The letter that he followed with was a letter to Charles Bellamy. Who, uh, I'm sorry, Bellamy Stoyer, who is a congressman from Cincinnati, a Catholic, and a friend of McKinley's. Very rare to have a Catholic Republican congressman in the 1880s and 1890s. McKinley is the first Republican presidential candidate to be endorsed by a member of the Catholic hierarchy after he takes on the largest pressure group in America in the 1880s and the 1890s called the American Protective Association, which is a virulently anti-Catholic group. When he runs for re-election, he's won election in, in Ohio is a very competitive state, just like it was, just like it is today. He wins election as governor of Ohio by 21,000 votes, and when he goes to run for re-election, the, uh, the APA, which has something like 80,000 members in Ohio, tells him that he must fire Catholic prison workers, and he refuses, and they, ref- and they in- oppose his re-election, and he wins by 80,000 votes. So he's a modernizer, though, and he sees that the Republican Party, that his generation is reaching their end. And he doesn't like the generation that immediately followed them, the generation of the 1870s and the early 1880s, which had come to dominance, because these were machine men. These were men who were boodle men, they graft. They, they, he thought that po- the politics of that era is, was corrupt. So in the 1896 campaign, his campaign is run by a 32-year-old kid. McKinley meets him in 1894 when the kid shows up in Columbus, Ohio, born in Ohio, 
went to law school in Cincinnati, and then lit out for the plains to make his living as a frontier lawyer in Lincoln, Nebraska. The kid offices in the same small office building as another young lawyer. In fact, the two men are members of a, of a men's debate club, and the young lawyer is a couple years older than him, four or five years older than him, and his name is William Jennings Bryan. And the young kid is a reform-minded Republican, and he shows up in McKinley's office in Columbus and says, if you run for president, I'm going to be for you. McKinley shows up in Nebraska, which is a battleground state, in the fall of, 1870, of 1894, and the kid reports to him that he's organized Nebraska on his behalf and the Dakotas and is working on some contacts in Montana. McKinley's impressed with the kid. So he says to him, says to himself, I want the kid involved. The kid has made some money in a bank deal and some real estate and has decided he's going to leave Lincoln and go to Chicago and become an entrepreneur. His idea is he's going to buy gas utilities and knit them together. Back then, gas utilities served a very small area, and there were a lot of them. And his idea was, I'm going to buy these, knit them together, get economies of scale, and make a bunch of money. And so he moves to Illinois in January of 1895, and, and Illinois is going to be the critical battleground in the Republican presidential nomination sweepstakes. In fact, one of McKinley's lieutenants calls it the Gettysburg of the contest. So what does McKinley do? He picks the kid who has just moved to Chicago and says, you're the commander of my campaign in Illinois. The kid has two lieutenants who are Civil War generals, who are 20 or 30 years his, his, his superiors, and they, take, they, they fall in love with the kid and take to calling him the general because he's so well-organized and so meticulous, and they're so respectable as leadership, they become quite fond of him. And he has another lieutenant who's a streetcar conductor and a leader of the Young Republicans. And the four of them organize the state of Illinois, and and in spring of 1896, deal a devastating blow to the machine, to the blonde boss and his lieutenants, and win the state Republican convention by better than two to one, and end the Republican election sweepstakes, the the nomination sweepstakes. The kid is at this point 31 years old, and McKinley says to him, I want you to run my fall campaign, and so Charles G. Dawes goes to Chicago and, and runs the fall campaign. When McKinley gets elected, Dawes is made the controller of the currency at the age of 32 and commanded the nation's entire banking system. He becomes the first director of the very first Bureau of the Budget under Warren G. Harding, vice president of the United States under Calvin Coolidge, ambassador to Great Britain, first head of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and the second American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But when McKinley sees him, he's a 30-year-old kid who's showing up in his office saying, if you run, I want to be for him. McKinley had an eye for talent. And the reason he goes with, with Roosevelt, Roosevelt writes a letter. After he writes his sister, he writes that letter to Stoyer and then gets Stoyer, more importantly, Mrs. Stoyer, to lobby their close friend, William McKinley, on his behalf. He invites them to, to uh, Oyster Bay and takes Mrs. Stoyer out on Long Island Sound and rows her around, pouring out his heart. My career is at an end. The only way that I can resurrect it is if McKinley gets me a po- wins and gives me a post, but he doesn't like me, but he loves you. She later wrote that he, he rowed like he spoke spoke spasmodically. <laughs> so she's scared to death as he's rowing her around Long Island Sound, pouring out his heart. At the end of the campaign, they go to, they go to McKinley and say, you know, he d- gave you good service. 
He, he did what you wanted on the campaign trail. He gave Hannah good advice. He gave you good advice. He played a big role in getting you to get the right message on the monetary question, the currency question, which he did. Give him a chance. He doesn't want to be in the cabinet. He wants a new job that's never been created. Um, he wants to be the assistant secretary of Navy. Nobody's ever had the job. It's really not that important, but it will resurrect his career. You owe it to him, and he's the kind of young man you want to, want to do. And McKinley says... Okay, I'll give it to him, but I do not trust your young man, Roosevelt. He's too pugnacious. <laughs> but I think it's deliberate. I think he is literally going out. There's one guy. There's a guy from, named Pratt from, from Wisconsin. He is, the, he is the influence peddler par excellence in, in Wisconsin. He represents the railroads and the timber companies. He represents the big uh, food uh, purchasers, the commodity companies. He, he literally is, uh, he owns the streetcar company in Milwaukee. He's made so much money as a lobbyist. And at the end of the campaign, he goes to, and he devotes the entire campaign, fall, the spring and the fall, to helping McKinley. He's got a smart nose. He says, that guy's going to win. I'm going to attach myself to him. He spends the entire fall, the entire summer, the entire fall, working full-time for McKinley, doing everything that could be asked as a member of the Republican Executive Committee. At the end of the campaign, he goes to McKinley, and we don't know what he asked for, but he asked for something in the cabinet, and McKinley passed him over. Why? Because he didn't want that kind of influence peddler and boodler in his cabinet. And uh, so, yeah, I think it was deliberate. I'd like to ask a question uh, about the international dimension of all this, especially in 1898. Uh, it comes to a surprise to the British that the Americans have taken over the Philippines, especially, oh. and territories in the Caribbean. Uh, but to the British, this is okay. For one reason, it prevents further German expansion oh. Oh. in the uh, Pacific, but there's another dimension to it because a few years later, uh, the British and the Japanese conclude an alliance uh, with the, uh, the Anglo-Japanese alliance. The Americans, this is my question, to what extent were they kind of anticipating that this might lead into vast compl international complications? Well, I think, th I think they knew that, but I think they knew that they were in a changing world. I mean, particularly uh, uh, the, the, the foreign policy men, if you will, around McKinley, uh, including Roosevelt as a junior guy, but they knew the world was changing. This is one of McKinley's, McKinley's, you know, McKinley is seen as an arch protectionist, for example, but he is, he is shot in Buffalo in 1901, September of 1901, after giving a speech that basically says the world has changed and we must embrace reciprocity. If you lower your tariffs to the sale and importation of American goods in your country, we, we should lower our, our, our tariffs uh, and obstacles to trade with you because you realize as the world is changing. So I think particularly since, look, he's the guy, not Roosevelt, it's, it's, it's McKinley with Long, the Secretary of Navy, and Roosevelt, the Assistant Secretary of Navy, who begin building the great American white fleet. They begin building the modern American Navy. And why? Not because he just felt we needed to have a nice Navy. He was thinking in international terms. We live now in a global world, and our, our, our economic success as a country depends upon our ability to sell things around the world. In order to do that, we must protect our trade routes and make our influence known, which is why I think he took Hawaii, even though it complicated lives for everybody who had to deal with one of the most pressing questions of trade in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, which is what do you do about sugar? And, and he was willing to take, uh, take the action uh, and take Puerto Rico because the question was, what do you do to keep American influence in, in our neighborhood? Michael Brenner. Uh, Mr. Rowe, you're here among uh, sort of fellow Texans, free-speaking Texans. 
So I hope you wouldn't mind if we turn to a sensitive issue and that we begin in Havana Harbor, uh -huh. where the incident of the Maine led to the United States' uh, act of military action, aggression, whatever you want to call it, uh -huh. which punctuated and extended a tradition that began with Polk's deceptive moves which laid the basis politically for the invasion of Mexico. One could argue, looking at consequences, that that event shaped, didn't shape, but influenced and gave uh, emphasis to an American aptitude, which also manifested itself in the 20th century, and even the 21st century. The Tonkin Gulf Resolution, and also the deception and misrepresentations that led us to invade Iraq. Yeah, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry. Connection yeah. among these events. Well, first of all, first of all, let's let, the pattern of deception and misrepresentation. Yeah. you said that. You said that once already, so I've got it. <laughs> so, first of all, I'd say that the trend it goes back further than that, because I'm I'm doing some work on a third book, uh, and I'm looking at the Louisiana Purchase. One of the reasons we get Louisiana is because we threaten the French that if you don't sell it to us, we may just take it. In fact, in fact, literally the, the, on, the, on the 10th of April, 1803, Napoleon meets with his Navy, his Navy secretary and his Treasury secretary and says, should, should we take possession of Louisiana or give it up? Because he has just gotten word of a debate in Congress in which Senator Ross of Pennsylvania has basically said, let's, let's see, here's a resolution authorizing the president to take 50,000 people and uh, 50,000 volunteers and mobilize them. And he's also gotten word from the uh, French Chars d'Affaires in, in, uh, in, in Washington that, that, there's, that by the time that they take possession of Louisiana, it may actually be in the hands of, of men from Kentucky. So uh, this, this is, this, America is an expansionist country. And so, yeah, there have been some moments. Now, I will take umbrage of one thing. I do not think it was appropriate for you to launch such a vicious personal attack on Senator Ted Kennedy, Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, Senator John Kerry, Senator Reed of Nevada, and others who voted in favor of the uh, authorization for the use of force after looking at the intelligence and concluding that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. They were not guilty of deception. They made a good faith effort to look at the same intelligence that President George W. Bush looked at, and they came to the same conclusion. You may remember, for example, Senator Kennedy giving a speech at Georgetown University saying, of course, I've looked at the intelligence and Saddam has WMD, but I believe we ought to use diplomacy, not force, in order to remove it. You may remember the speech given by John Kerry in which he used language regarding the presence of nuclear materials and nuclear weapons programs in Iraq that was far beyond anything that the Bush administration said. You may remember the speech given by Al Gore at the Commonwealth Club in the fall of, 19, of, of 2002 saying that Saddam had WMD and represented a serious threat, biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons that represented a threat to the stability of the region and in the, United, in the interests of the United States. So I would not accuse these people of making a good faith effort to look at the existing intelligence and saying that they were guilty of deception and lying. Mr. Rowe, that intelligence, as you well know, was cooked. No, it wasn't. Yes, no, it wasn't. Was. Go read, go read, go read if you will. The, the, the report... 
good deal. Well, may I finish? People that you referred to did not read. Well, then, then the, the, that's con that's really condemning them. Well, yes. That's really condemning them. But I'm not speaking as a Democrat the way you speak as Republican. I'm speaking as a patriot. So am I, sir. I served my country for seven years. So don't give me that line. We're here to talk about McKinley. If you want to have a political argument and rehash Iraq, you and I can stay here afterwards and spend hours talking about it. But, but you've made your point. You think it was deception and misrepresentation. I say that's absolute bunk. Absolute Steve Weinberg. Fine. I'd like to ask a nice, safe question. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask you to compare McKinley with his predecessor, Cleveland. Um, <laughs> I have the impression from reading Philip's book about uh, McKinley that if you had to oversimplify and put them on a spectrum from left to right, that McKinley would be to the left of Cleveland. Could you comment on that? Well, that's not uncommon during the Gilded Age for the, for the Republican to be, in our modern terms, to the left of a Democrat, because the Democratic Party during the Gilded Age is the party of limited government, low taxes, free trade. Uh, so the gold standard under Cleveland. And, and the, well, and he's in the minority of the Democratic Party by the end of his term. This is the one, this, we're going through a populist moment where the Democratic Party is basically changed from being the hard money party of, of Jackson to being a soft money party. And this happens, it happens during Cleveland in large part because of the, of, of, of the, of the crisis on the plains and the, the economic disruption the country goes through. But yeah, look, think, think about this, for example. McKinley is an ardent proponent in the 1880s of federal protections for black rights in the South, for civil rights in the South. He's a, he is a protectionist. He's in favor of funding the government, not by high taxes, but by high tariffs. And, and, when, we get to the, and when we get to 1892 and uh, 1888, Grover Cleveland is a hard money man. Realistically, until the 1896 campaign, McKinley has a very mixed record on currency. He comes from a very competitive state with a lot of soft money, inflationary views going back to the Civil War. And so he is, like he votes, in, uh, he votes for uh, soft money uh, measures throughout the 1870s and 80s, though he is fundamentally, you know, he, his instinct is, I got to do politically cover my flank. I'm in a district that is highly competitive uh, and where the opinion is split. But when, when push comes to shove, he's a hard money man. That's fair. One, yeah. one other thing, though, quickly. One of the, I think the biggest difference between the two men is their political skills. Uh, uh, Cleveland, there's a brittleness to him. There's a, if, if you're really into the era, read, read, the letter, read his letters. Alan Evans did, did a collection of his extensive collection. He is, look, this guy is... Thank God they didn't have Twitter back then, because he is raging in private in the White House about being stabbed in the back by his fellow Democrats, and he's angry. McKinley is a genial figure. In fact, Reed once complained, he said, my enemies always feel compelled to apologize to William before they call him names. <laughs> and McKinley was an adroit manager of people, and he had, a, he had a, 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 a very affable personality, but smart as hell and knew how to maneuver people. And uh, Cleveland, bless his soul, uh, twice elected president, non-consecutive terms, uh, was, not that, was not that able a politician. Yeah, I had a question. You may, uh, we'll, we'll be back there next. Yeah, an amusing uh, 
it said Matthew McConaughey running for governor, and I thought that was really amusing because he's a UT graduate, and you know, I don't know much about you know his political views or anything like that. He's probably a Democrat, <laughs> but I thought it was rather amusing. He sells cars too. <laughs> and whiskey. I've always been puzzled by McKinley. He's known for the McKinley tariff, as you said, a high protectionist man, tariff was a big other. And then with sugar, he had this carve out about free trade on, on sugar for a long time. And so there's this odd that we know that sugar was a huge supporter of McKinley, but there's also the Hawaii issue. And so you could say a little bit more about what explains this kind of carve out and exception that sugar, which is well, the oil of the day to his mm-hmm. analyzed rest of his trade policy. Well, remember, though, McKinley is, is not the highest protectionist around. He believes in relatively high tariffs in order to protect the, the, what they call the home market, uh, American producers and American working people. But he votes against measures that he thinks are too punitive. His, his mentor is Pig Iron Kelly, William Kelly, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee when he comes into Congress. And Pig Iron... Uh, takes a, a, a tariff bill and blows it up, and McKinley votes against it. Now, what, why sugar? Because McKinley's view was we shouldn't have tariffs on things that we don't produce or make in this country. And second of all, we ought not to have tariffs on things that the ordinary working man and working woman depend upon. So he was pu- for putting coffee and sugar and several other items like that on what was called the free list so there'd be no tariff paid on it. He has a much more nuanced view. I'm, I'm a free trader, so I mean, any protectionist sounds sort of goofy to me. But, but he has a very nuanced view. He, he would preside over these committee hearings, and when he thought that, that industries were asking for more than they deserve to have, he'd say, I, he would say, I'm not interested in what you want to have. I'm interested in what, you, in, in what the home market must have. So he, he's, a, he's got a nuanced view on it, which I think made him open to the idea of, of we're a global economy and reciprocity. When he comes into politics, the advocate for reciprocity is James G. Blaine, the monumental liar from the state of Maine. He's the, he's the guy who sort of is considered by a Republican high tariff men as being, as being untrustworthy because he's, he's in favor of, of reciprocity starting in the hemisphere. Here, and then David Edwards, and then Tom Hatfield. about McKinley and Roosevelt in terms of continuity and change, and it almost seems to be that there's a discernible tipping point between the two, and certainly a generational shift, and yet yet it's a shift that, that because of the events of, you know, what we do, assassination comes early, and I wanted to know what the what-ifs of, of, of 1901 are, in that sense. Well, um, we wouldn't have been as heavily entertained for the next seven years. But uh, Mary makes a very good uh, case, I think, in his new book, that the seeds of what we attribute to Roosevelt, trust busting, for example, uh, 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 laws to protect uh, food and so forth, those those start to happen under McKinley. Because, again, McKinley is a reformer. So, and remember, when McKinley dies, it's hard for us to get this today. I mean, because he's an obscure, the 25th president of the United States. Who knows who he is? When he dies... It is a moment of national grief like the country has not seen since, since Lincoln and will not see again until Kennedy. Because remember, he comes into office and the country is in a deep depression and almost immediately springs out of the depression. 
So when he runs for re-election in 1900, he wins re-election by the largest number since Ulysses S. Grant's re-election in 1872 against the hapless um, uh, uh, Greeley. And the country is at peace and prosperity. And we've won this short and popular war. And McKinley is uh, a unifying force. And so when he is shot it, 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 by a terrorist, incidentally, he is shot by an anarchist. And when, he, when his body is conveyed to Washington, D.C., 500,000 people line the railroad tracks from Buffalo to Washington. When the, when the, station, when the train comes into the station in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to, to, to rewater, there are 30,000 people there jammed into the, in and around the station. So many people, the governor of Pennsylvania cannot force his way through the crowd in order to pay his respects to Mrs. McKinley. And when the train begins pulling out of the station, the entire crowd begins spontaneously singing patriotic songs and hymns. He rolls into the, Buffalo, he rolls in, rolls into the Baltimore uh, train station, and for the last mile or two into the train station, people have heaped floral tributes on the railroad tracks so that by the time the train pulls into the station is literally covered with flowers. Uh, a reporter writes that as the, when they pull out of Baltimore, the sun is setting, and he, and, he, and he says that all along the tracks, from Baltimore to Washington, uh, the, the entire way is lit by bonfires by the farmers, most of them black, who are standing there soundlessly uh, as the train comes by. There are so many people who want to see him lie in state in Washington that literally they extend the hours, but even then, when he is taken to the station, when his body is taken to the station to return to Canton, there are something like twenty or 30,000 people still standing in line. And the, the moment he's, he is taken home in an open car, glass car, so you can see the, 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 the coffin. And, as he, and, and, he's, and he's taken overnight, and literally uh, the reporters talk about how they pass smelter and mine uh, front and factory all along the way back to Canton, Ohio. And all of the men, the, the working men, are standing there uh, saluting their fallen chief. He's conveyed to the, to the uh, receiving vault in the Canton uh, Cemetery, and the school children of Nashville, Tennessee, have, have raised enough money to send a train car load of sweet pea flowers to strew on the path into the, into, the, uh, into the cemetery. So you have this picture of grizzled Civil War veterans openly weeping and stopping to pick up a, a flower to put it into their, into their lapel. The entire cabinet is there. And the receiving vault is in front of a small ridge, about 50 feet tall and about 400 or 500 yards long. And the entire ridge is covered with floral tributes, the Tsar of Russia and the president of Chile. But most of them are from like the miners of Lackawanna County salute our chief. You know, the Croatian uh, American, uh, you know, steel society, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. I've got pictures of these and you just can't believe how personal this all is. There's one man who's standing apart from the cabinet. Because the cabinet, many of them are openly weeping. But Theodore Roosevelt doesn't want to sit or stand with the cabinet because he's afraid his emotions will be overcome. His first pledge is, I will retain the cabinet and fulfill the policies of William McKinley. David Edwards. I seem to remember reading that in uh, McKinley's election, workers in the, on the payday before the election, workers... Lots of places found slips in there and pay envelopes saying, 
don't bother to report for work unless McKinley wins? Uh, there, there were uh, not widespread, but there were very clear statements by by. Look, there, there was a real fear among the working among among business owners that suddenly they would be anarchy. I mean, remember, you take these two campaigns. One is unifying. McKinley says we're all in this together. The prosperity of the country depends upon wor- labor and capital together, and he refused to pit them against each other. Brian is running around the country in something the country has never seen. This is, he runs the first, he looks like a modern candidate, only he's doing it on the train rather than flying around. But he is giving some days 12 and 13 speeches, and they are nasty. You know, he excoriates the bloodsuckers of Wall Street and Lombard Street and the money changers of, of the Rothschilds. And, uh, you know, anybody, I mean, he stands up in Lincoln, Nebraska, at the train station. He's on his way to New York City to give a speech in Madison Square Garden to accept formally the Democratic nomination. And he says, I go into the enemy's country. The entire campaign is distilled down in that one phrase. It's us versus them. And he is constantly harping about how it's those that don't have versus those that have. And as a result, you had business people who literally feared. And remember, until September, it looks like he's going to win. You have, you have people who basically are saying, we lose this election, I'm going to take what I got and get the heck out of here, you know, you know, hole up as best I can and try and survive. Tom Hatfield. I, 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 I admit I took the quiz after the, tri- the Normandy trip with Hatfield, and I think I passed, <laughs> but he's never given me my paper back. <laughs> yes, I did, because you gave me two of your columns to review and edit while we were there. That's right. And I did that for yes, you. Yes, you did. And I never got credit for it. And there were, well, <laughs> as I said, those of them got and versus those of them don't. <laughs> Carl, you are, uh, I'm captivated by how captivated you are by this period, uh, given how you are so identified uh, with American, with the politics of our country in the early 21st century. What was it that captured your imagination so much about the late 19th century? Well, actually there's a stupid story behind that. Uh, I was teaching at the I was teaching at the LBJ school, uh, and uh, the only Republican member of the faculty, and uh, and I had a yeah, which is true, and I had I was teaching an undergraduate class and a joint appointment with the government department and the journalism department, and I had done so for a couple of years, and uh, the head of the government department, Jim Fishkin, said, "Hey, you're forty something. We'll put you in the PhD program and fast track you." because you've got a lot of practical experience, and we'll do this for you. There's only one minor thing, which is you've got to get your B.A. first. <laughs> so so I, I, I took the astronomy course. I took, my dad was a geologist, so I took the geology thing, and I took the math course. But I had to demonstrate, I had to fulfill the upper division writing requirement. And after running a, a public affairs business for 18 years, there was no evidence whatsoever that I could string together two sentences. <laughs> now, I was a little bit busy because this is 1996 and uh, sort of uh, it's becoming clear that Bush might, if we don't win the election, which it doesn't look like we will, that there might be something going on in the future. So I'm getting a little busy at this point. So I look in the course catalog to find out 
is there something that I can do without having to take a class? And I'm looking through the history, and was it 350, a seminar in historical source writing? Yeah, 353. Yeah. 353 or 351. Yeah. Anyway, I have no idea this is never granted, but it sure sounded good. Find a professor, do some research in the original source material, write a paper, get three hours, checklist, upper division writing requirement. So I walk into the department, not knowing this is never done, and the woman behind the desk sort of looks at me suspiciously, and I say, here's what I, I'm here to do. And she says, well, you have to get a professor to agree to take you on. And so I said, well, who's here? <laughs> and she said, well, there's only one professor here right now, Lewis Gould. I said, well, can I see him? And she said, mm, let me see. So she goes and talks to Gould, who had sort of vague knowledge of who I was, so he sort of intrigued. He says, what do you want to... Why, what are you interested in writing about? I said, I'm interested in Theodore Roosevelt, 1895. How does this guy pull it off? Little do I know Gould is the leading historian of the Gilded Age. <laughs> this, is, this, is like, this is like his alley. So he says, I'll take you on. He says, but you got to do one thing. you got to read the McKinley papers because history gets McKinley wrong. So I'm investigating Theodore Roosevelt, but I'm reading the McKinley papers, and by God... There's an amazingly smart operator right there, adroit, different, unusual, and now I can, you know, I, I sort of fell in love with him, and, uh, but all because I wanted to get the upper division writing requirement, <laughs> which I did get, incidentally, but not without the normal UT. So <laughs> I, at the end of the semester, I didn't have it done because I was a little occupied in the fall of, 90, of 96. So Gould says, don't worry, turn it in in the spring. So I turn it in in the spring, by which time it has now been removed from the catalog. <laughs> so I'm like, shit, I got three hours, but I didn't fulfill the upper division writing requirement. So the next fall, they put it back in the catalog. So I go to the undergraduate student advising office and say, I, I did this. Can I please get the check mark? No, no, you have to take it over again. This guy knew who I was. He was very pointed in his comments about who I was. So he wasn't going to give me any. So I, I went back and did it again and did the seminar on historical source writing. I am the world's leading expert on the 1940 Wilkie presidential campaign for the convention, uh, convention plan. So right here. Be happy to give you all of that, too. But, but, but it took me two times to get, to get the upper division writing requirement. Fortunately, you could take 351 twice. Yeah. So I have a question uh, that it's your opinion, uh, both as a student of the Gilded Age and as a modern political strategist. Uh, so plenty of people have compared our own age to the first Gilded Age. Uh, and as you see revelations about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, you begin to see kind of a groundswell of movement against concentrated forms of economic power, particularly those involving data. Uh, and I guess my question to you as a modern political strategist is, having seen that most of that rhetoric is from the left side of the Democratic Party, is there a middle ground uh, that involves much the same kind of middle ground that you say McKinley saw? Yeah. Well, um, not to get, this is, now we're getting out into Wackyville. Um, we're, we're going through a populist moment, just like they were going through a populist moment back then. But populism is not a... Uh, populism is more a, a, a method of, of acting than it is a, you know, concrete philosophy. And there is a, ec both, there are economic, there's a left form of populism and a right form of populism. Both of them share something in common. And that is that the relationship between the state and the individual has gotten seriously warped and needs to be revisited. 
And the economic populism of the left is that the little man is getting screwed and the big man's getting it all, and you've got to redo the relationship between the state and the individual in order to let the little man get his fair share. But there's also a cultural form of populism, which is, is to say things are changing so fast that the things that you hold dear and true, the values that you hold, are, are, being, dis, are being attacked or even disappearing. And we saw that in the 2016 presidential campaign where clearly Trump was making an appeal towards the forgotten man, towards the values, your values, respect for law and order, respect for the military, respect for law enforcement, respect for hard work. These things were being undervalued. What's interesting is in 1896, we see in, in Bryan's campaign a healthy dose of that cultural populism in the form of agrarianism. He is, he is opposed to the, modern, to the modern industrial economy. In fact, uh, when he gives his famous cross of gold speech, this pops out. But there's a cultural element to his populism uh, in, um, in, uh, in, 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 as well as economic. Come on, let me right here. Let's see here. Uh, give me just a second here. Oh. He identified free silver with rural and small-town America, saying the populated East favored gold, but those great cities rest upon these broad and fertile plains. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic, but destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. So there's a cultural populism that's evident in 1896 as well. We've come to the end of the hour. Could we have a couple of concluding questions? So, um, if McKinley is, is, I mean, his presidency was so influential in the long term. He was such a remarkable man. So why do you think he's so culturally forgotten compared to some of the figures around him, like Theodore versus Theodore Roosevelt? No, no nobody can compete on the uh, for attention like Theodore. <laughs> he needed it. He wanted it. He got it. McKinley isn't that kind of a person. Think about this. He is recommended for the Congressional Medal of Honor and refuses to have the application press saying, I was only doing my duty. He's a very modest person and a modest personality, but it made him a very capable leader. He is enormously respected when he is in Congress and achieves things that were not thought to be achievable by dint of strategy and personal demeanor and so forth. But look, who can, who can stand on that stage and not be outshined by Theodore Roosevelt. And remember, when we, when the 20 years or 30 years after he died, the progressive historians dominated in the 1920s and 30s when it came to writing history, and their goal was the, you know, they were captivated by the bombastic, pugilistic Mr. Roosevelt. McKinley was, you know, not as hot. Yeah. In that uh, recent um, biography of McKinley, uh, he always wanted to be called Major yeah. instead of by any other title because he said the other titles were thrust on him, but he earned it. Yeah, he said, I don't know about those others, but I know I earned that one, and he did. Yeah. Enters the war as a private, 18 years old. He and the men of the, Polo the teenagers of the Poland, Ohio militia show up at Camp Jackson outside of Columbus in April of 1861 and are told, boys, We've got the, we've got the, the, the I mean, uh, Lincoln has called for, I think it's 75,000 volunteers. Our, our quota of volunteers has been filled. You have two choices. 
go home, or sign up for three years or the duration, whichever is longer. And almost to a man, the, the teenagers of the, of, of, of the Poland militia join up. McKinley gets his first battlefield promotion on the bloodiest day of the Civil War, the Battle of Antietam. He's a very meticulous, well-organized guy with a lot of integrity, so he's made a commissary sergeant. So he is comfortably behind the front lines when at 2 a.m., the 23rd Ohio goes into battle with orders to take the Burnside Bridge. Some of you are Civil War buffs may remember the Great Stone Bridge. He's watching comfortably behind the lines when they go into battle. At 2 p.m., they've finally taken the bridge with terrific casualties and are now sheltered underneath the bluff from the Confederate troops. And McKinley's worried about his comrades because they have not had anything to eat or drink since the night before. So he finds a wagon, gets gets a straggler to help him load tins of coffee and boiled meat, whatever that is, and hardtack, and fills up the wagon and begins riding towards the front lines through a wooded area. An officer comes upon him and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to supply the men of the 23rd. The officer says, no, you're not. He said, in order to do that, you'll have to ride across 500 yards of open field, and the only thing in that open field are dead men. Turn the wagon around. McKinley says, I will, but I need to go forward a little bit further because it's not wide enough for me to turn the wagon around. Satisfied, the officer rides off. McKinley has no intention to turn around, rides further to the front lines, comes to the edge of the forest, an officer with several of his aides comes rattling up, and the same conversation takes place, and he orders McKinley directly, turn around and go back. Do not proceed any further. McKinley waits until he rides off, and when he does whips the mules or horses. There's a big debate on whether it's horses or mules. I'm a horse man. But whips the mules, comes roaring out of the tree line, and the Confederates can't believe it. Who is the idiot in the wagon rolling across 500 yards of open turf, and they open up. The entire ridge line opens up. Artillery, musket fire, bullets are flying. A cannon shell takes off the back of the wagon. But somehow or another, McKinley makes it through this firestorm, rolls across the bridge, and a a close friend and later his tent mate, Russell Hastings, later a general, said, the men of the 23rd stood as one and cheered. And McKinley makes his way through the crowd, giving out coffee. One one man says to him, uh, God bless you, lad, when he gets probably the last cup of coffee he had on this earth. And McKinley says it was the greatest uh, thanks he could ever receive. He's made a lieutenant, second lieutenant as a result of this. At the Battle of Kernstown in 1864, he's turned into a bright young uh, aide to uh, the brigade commander. And uh, early in the morning, Jubal Early's troops break out of the trees in a surprise attack on the Union left and begin to crumple the front line of the Union left. And the brigade commander orders the five regiments under his control to withdraw in before it's too late. He wants to get them out of there while they can still retreat in good order. And the, the word gets to three, excuse me, to four of the units, but it doesn't get to the 13th West Virginia on the extreme right of the Union line. And they're in an orchard. They can't see the advancing Confederates. They're about ready to be cut off and shot to pieces. And the brigade commander doesn't want, know what to do. He looks around, spots McKinley, and says, ride to the men of the 13th and get them out of there. This requires, as the Union line is collapsing, for McKinley to ride in, on an active battlefield in front of the Union line, ever closer to the Confederates, in order to get to the 13th. Hastings said, we thought it was a suicide mission. And they watched as he mounted his horse and began to ride. And the battlefield is like a battlefield. And they, they're, they're waiting for him to fall. And a shell goes off right next to a, his horse. Big blast. And Hastings said, we thought he was gone. But he wrote later, 
Out of the crowd of glare smoke came the small brown horse with the erect horseman. Somehow or another, McKinley makes it through to the 13th West Virginia. The commander of the 13th West Virginia is sort of startled that this is all happening. He says, can we at least give them a round? They form up, walk out of the orchard, and lay a, uh, a barrage into the advancing Confederates, decimating their ranks and retire in good order. McKinley rides behind the Union lines, walks into his brigade commander's tent. The brigade commander turns around, takes one look at him, turns white, and Colonel Rutherford B. Hayes says, my God, I never expected to see you in this life again. The 23rd Ohio had two future presidents and one future Supreme Court justice in its ranks. Colonel, we want to thank Thanks. you.